Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DD6. I'm happy to be here for this episode with Dr. Vanina Delbello Haas, professor in the School of Rehabilitation Science and assistant dean of the physiotherapy program at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. In addition, Dr. Delbello Haas is involved in quality optimal living and aging through Rehabilitation Lab. Welcome, Vanina, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Parm, and thanks for having me. This is quite exciting. So I've been a physiotherapist for many, many years, and I've essentially worked in every single practice area except for pediatrics. And since 1994, I would say I've been specializing um, in the assessment and management of people with neurodegenerative diseases. So that includes amyotrophic lateral sclerosis and dementia, and I've also been involved in older adult work. I've been an educator since 1994 as well, and I no longer practice clinically. Um, that stopped when I took on the assistant dean position in 2011, but up until that time, I had been practicing clinically, and I've actually practiced in the U.S., practiced in the province of Ontario and the province of Saskatchewan. Cool. So we're happy to have some international presence in tonight's podcast. So we were hoping specifically to talk about your work with people with ALS, you know, because it's a topic uh, diagnosis that certainly I think a lot of PTs of our members um, in the DD-SIG see, but don't see a lot of. And sometimes when you have those conditions that you see some of the time, but not often enough to gain recognition of patterns and, you know, ideas. I think it's, it's great to sort of beef up on some of those sometimes. So we're excited to, to talk about it tonight, but I'd like to start with classifying people with ALS, specifically in your 2018 article, which is titled Physical Therapy for Individuals with ALS Current Insights. Mm-hmm. And I also want to tell you, I think it's just beautifully written, super easy to read and understand. So I really appreciated that. It'll be in our show notes for sure for people okay. to look into and find. But in that paper, there is a discussion of the classification of ALS specifically looking at staging, phenotype, diagnosis, and category. So, you know, my question is how often in clinical practice, for example, do we see people with those classifications or that sort of level of detail of classification? Right. So I think the research around, for sure, staging has come a long way. So when I first started in ALS way back when, the way we would look at ALS would be based on area of onset. So whether it was limb onset versus vulvar onset. So that's one way you can, for example, classify people. 
what's really come a long way is trying to come up with more of a phenotypic description of people, which includes stage of disease. So that's actually come a long way as well. Um, it's being increasingly adopted in general practice and in PT practice. So in 2002, I published a framework for people with neurodegenerative disease. And that included stage of disease. It was based on Nagy, but, you know, we can change the terminology to ICF, where it looks at early, middle, and, and late stage. And what is happening in the literature now in terms of the medical literature, clinical trial literature, that whole classification concept is really around trying to take that heterogeneity and put some structure around it to give people a better sense of what you might be looking at or dealing with in terms of someone presenting to you. So, you know, this person is middle stage, has this many limbs affected, is whatever genetic makeup positive or negative or doesn't have that involved, does not have cognitive impairment. So rather than just saying, this person has limb onset or bulbar onset, we're trying to expand that and really put some structure around the level of heterogeneity. And that classification also can include, does include L-Scoriel diagnostic criteria. So whether it's, you know, probable, possible, um, definite ALS. Okay. But sort of deeper is like, where is that classification being made? So there's multidisciplinary clinic, right? For people with ALS. There can be, yep. Mm -hmm. And for therapists who are treating often in multidisciplinary clinic, it's a population that because they're seeing on a somewhat regular basis, I think they get gain some familiarity with, they take the time to do some research. But for others who are not in that situation, but then might have the two or three or four patients a year with ALS, where can they find some support to kind of figure out that level of classification? Is it done in multidisciplinary clinic? I, I think it would depend what, what part of the classification um, you're looking at. So I think through say for, from history, you could ask the patient, you know, what signs and symptoms did you first notice and where did you notice them occurring, right? So that might give you an indication whether it's limb onset or bulbar onset. Mm-hmm. And that information in terms of part of the classification would be important because onset affects prognosis. And, you know, if you're dealing with someone with limb onset, you're probably looking at someone who can do certain things versus someone who has bulbar onset and they may have respiratory um, issues. So that's going to play a role. The other, like the diagnosis or L-Escorial or the genetics, that's going to have to come from a physician. That would be very hard for a physical therapist to determine, right? right? So you can ask the person, you know, diagnosis. Cognition, you may or may not have that information from the physician, but you certainly could screen for cognitive problems and feed that information in. Mm -hmm. And then stage of disease, I mean, it would depend on what you're, which staging you're using, certainly early, middle, late would be easy for someone who only sees, 
you know, four patients a year to try to make some sense of that. Um, and then there's other staging, like the King College staging, which does look at number of limbs affected and in terms of progression. So that might be a way someone can actually garner that information. But when you're asking where does it come from, the complexity of the stage and the example I used in that insight article comes from physicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's great for clinicians who can reach back to the physician and try to get some information on the patient if they can't get it directly from their chart review or from the patient themselves. But it sounds like it's not always just beautifully handed no. to you. <laughs> no, like, it's so not no. And it's, yeah, no, it's not beautifully handed to you at all. And actually when I wrote the paper and I included that, but the point I was trying to make was rather than just saying, here we have someone with possible ALS, what does that mean? If you can start breaking that down to say, and it's bulbar onset, and they don't have cognitive impairment, and they have a genetic component, and they have three limbs affected, and this and this, then that's a much better picture you know, in the medical chart to say, okay, now I know what I'm dealing with. Right. Because someone with possible ALS, could, that's a, an, like an Ellis Goriel diagnostic criteria, which means, you know, they meet these criteria for possible, but two people with possible, one person could have the left leg affected, the other could have the right leg affected, one person could have the right arm affected, the other person would have the left arm affected, one person might have increased saliva, the other person might not have increased saliva, and so on. Right. Yeah. So, so basically the more information that you can pull together, the better, which we know, but having these categories to sort of look at them in can help us to um, get a sense of that the whole patient that, you know, the, a, a better picture, like you said, of yeah. how the patient's coming to us. So, you know, once we figure that out, the other thing that can be pretty variable is their actual symptoms. Like you were just right dating, right? So then we've mm -hmm. got to deal with the person that's in front of us, mm -hmm. but sort of generally, what are you know, the most common symptoms that we're dealing with in someone with ALS? Right. So the cardinal sign is muscle weakness, right? Because ALS is a disease where the motor neurons die. Now, again, more recent research suggests that we're looking at a multi-system disease, not just purely a motor disease. So historically, we're taught, you know, ALS affects both upper and motor neurons. And we kind of leave it at that, right? So we're looking at that motor component. But there's research to suggest that the autonomic system can be affected, and the cerebellar system can be affected, and so on. And we know that a proportion, 30-40%, might actually have frontal temporal issues. So they have true frontal temporal dementia, and if they don't have that, they might have cognitive issues. They might have executive functioning and so on. So we're looking at perhaps a multi-system. Some of the other systems that might be affected are rare, but really the cardinal sign would be muscle weakness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then what the physical therapist has to figure out is, okay, how's that muscle weakness? What's it doing? Right. Grand things. right. Well, one of the interesting points that you brought up is that fatigue affects 90% mm -hmm. of people with ALS, which makes total sense, right? Yeah. But, right. but it's not directly addressed. Correct. Yeah. And 
a lot of this, like pain is another thing. We thought ALS was a painless disease. Well, it's, it's not a painless disease because muscle weakness can lead to contractures, can lead to subluxation and so on. So there is pain. And again, uh, physical therapists are primed to treat pain. So, yeah. well, the other thing about pain, this is, well, I'm going to get on my, Go ahead. my little pain soapbox. I love pain. I could talk about pain like all night long, Okay, but pain is a human experience. Yep. We all have pain. Yep. So yeah, of course, you know, weakness is going to lead to potentially more opportunity for pain, but we're all going to have pain. We need to address it in our patients. I think as physical therapists, we have to have some sort of comfort in dealing with pain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think pain is, is huge and is something that we need to address and we need to be comfortable mm-hmm. um, addressing with people. And, you know, I think the orthopedic PTs where that's their sort of bread and butter are, are doing it all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a lot to learn from them. So. But. Yeah. And I think sometimes when, we're working with people with ALS. We think there's like this magic bullet or treatment or something, but really what we're looking at is, you know, using our skills and our knowledge and picking apart what's going on. Right. So we treat pain and people with ALS, like we treat other people with pain. Right. Mm -hmm. So if it's a shoulder subluxation, then there's joint protection if it's adhesive capsulitis, then maybe there's mobilization, then modalities if that's appropriate, or you know, stretching or range of motion. I think sometimes we forget about that. But what we do need to do as physical therapists treating people with ALS is always in the back of our head thinking about it's degenerative, it's progressive. We I have to think ahead of what's coming down the pipeline because it is degenerative. There's going to be loss after loss after loss. Mm -hmm. So it's that nature of the disease that we have to keep in mind because I've heard horror stories from patients where, you know, they'll have muscle weakness. The grade of their muscle is actually a one and a physical therapist is putting electrical stim on. Okay. That's what's missing there is I don't understand the disease. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing about ALS is that, you know, a lot of, of us, as members of the DD-SIG are used to dealing with degenerative diseases, Mm -hmm. but the Mm -hmm. pace at which that degeneration occurs in ALS is very different. And, you know, if we're not used to talking about things like breathing early on when people can, they still have sort of have the muscle ability to do some training. Yeah. You know, we might think, Oh, that's something for later. Right. I always like to start that stuff with patients with ALS or, um, you know, other issues that might lead other sort of conditions that might lead to problems of breathing fairly early, even with people with Parkinson's, I'll start doing some breathing exercises early on when they're maybe less stiff so that they can, you know, work those muscles and, and keep that flexibility. Yeah. And absolutely with ALS, you need to take advantage of that, the earlier stages and the fact that there are some motor neurons still there and maybe you might get some sprouting or you might not, but you need to take advantage of that early stage and put things in place early on, just like you said. Yeah. And while we're talking about the respiratory intervention, what does the research tell us about the efficacy of doing, you know, breathing exercises with people with ALS? 
Yeah, so what it's showing, so no one's really looked at, say, breathing exercises, but there has been a small trial in inspiratory muscle training, and it was found to be effective in that, in the small group. Breath stacking is something else that's been looked at in the UK. It's almost like a range of motion exercise, right? Mm -hmm. So that breath stacking where you're taking a breath in, a breath in, and a breath in, it's used for enhancing cough, you know, cough augmentation, but it's also thought to keep the lungs, you know, pliable, like, you know, the expansion. Um, And then something else that there's a few things and they're more mechanical devices like maximum insufflation, exufflation. That's more for secretion clearance. There's lung volume recruitment, which is like an ambu bag. Again, it's for secretion clearance, but those things are actually felt to and have been shown to be effective in managing respiratory conditions. So again, we just have to keep the disease in mind. So if you're going to prescribe breathing exercises or prescribe inspiratory muscle training, okay, we can do that initially, but just know that we're probably looking at people progressing. At what rate? It depends on the person. Someone who has more slowly progressive disease, you're probably going to get more benefit longer period of time. That makes sense. Someone with rapidly progressive disease, some of these things you might not even consider because there's just so much, so many other things that you have to think about that might be priority. And the respiratory component might be, they have to go on to non-invasive ventilation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other aspect of that to really consider is, which I think is super tricky, is like, how how much do I give them that is potentially going to contribute to their fatigue and decrease Absolutely. their quality of life versus you know, at what point do we say, okay, what are we doing here? That's just really energy conservation and getting you so that you can spend the time that you want to with family and doing the things that are meaningful to you. And I think that's tricky. So I don't know if you have any words of wisdom, tips, insight. Right. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's the priorities. I mean, I can think of an example that will always stay with me. And I'll start there and then maybe I'll talk a little bit about the other um, question that you have. So this, this patient will always stick with me forever because he was a young man. He was in his early thirties and he had a young son and he and his wife made a conscious decision to have a second son or second baby, knowing that he had ALS. I mean, talk about courage and strength in an individual. He put a plan into place that, as soon as his older son graduated from kindergarten, he would be removed from any ventilation. So he was on non-invasive ventilation pretty quickly because he was rapidly progressing. And then he eventually went to invasive ventilation. But his plan was, as soon as my older son graduates from kindergarten, then I want to come off the ventilation. So we, we essentially had three years. And we sat down and talked about, okay, what are your priorities in those three years? And it's not like, it's not like your typical physical therapy session, because when, when we were talking in one of the sessions, he said, I can't stand my BiPAP tubing. I can't stand the fact that it's in front of my face and it's doing this and it's doing that. And so I spent part of the session altering his baseball cap and his neck brace so that the, the tubing wouldn't be as evident and it wasn't bothering him as much. So it's, it's taking that what the person is prioritizing and it might be something small like that, 
but it's very impactful. Mm -hmm. Is that physical therapy? I mean, I would consider it, yes, physical therapy. It's showing, to me, it's like the three C's, care, compassion, and creativity. And I can give you lots of examples of that. But that's where we have to, we have to kind of step back and say, you know, that's the priority. Now, lots of people ask about exercise. They think exercise is going to make them better. But again, we have to think about it in the big picture. You have to balance, you know, overuse, overwork with underwork. And what is the priority? So if you have someone, say, retired, you know, their goal is to walk their daughter down the aisle, are we going to set them up on an aerobic and resistance training program per the American College of Sports Medicine? No, maybe, probably not. We're probably going to do something around making sure that walk down the aisle is safe and he's conserving energy. So before and after that walk. But you might have someone else who's always been active. And so we're going to take into account those priorities and those goals and structure program accordingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, but I think sometimes when you're starting out, it's hard, you know, with a person, it's sort of hard to, to have that conversation or a level of comfort, which is why I think, you know, with ALS, just like so many other degenerative diseases that we've talked about on this podcast, it's so nice to really promote that dental model of physical therapy where people are sticking with their therapist and it's not episodic, like I'm coming to see you for yeah. this yeah. one, sh you know, little weakness that's resulting in shoulder pain because I have ALS, but then, you know, sticking with them and kind of doing some kind of regular follow-up starting as early as possible um, is, is clearly important. Yeah. yeah. And checking in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that that quality of life, you also have a, a paper looking at the impact of rehab interventions on quality of life is, is, is really important. And there were some themes that emerged out of that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. paper. But the one that really struck me the most was this concept of control. Yeah, which I think is what you're getting to with your example of the young man, like this is the thing that was bothering him. Mm -hmm. And if you could help him to gain some control over that situation, it's going to improve his quality of life. Yeah, that was a match. We did a metasynthesis of some of the qualitative research around ALS and linking it to what may or may not impact quality of life. And it was the sense of control, not only over the intervention, but the timing of the intervention. And you're absolutely right. I mean, as new grads, these are hard conversations, right? Because we know, for example, if someone's falling or has a foot drop, right, maybe they need an AFO. But the patient might say, I don't want an AFO. And they might say, I don't want an AFO because they want to keep the control or they're not ready to acknowledge that their disease is progressing or whatever reason, right? So we have, we have to be comfortable with allowing the decision-making <laughs> to happen, we can have the conversation, you won't trip. Um, you know, if you if we give you this AFO, you'll have more energy to do XYZ, because you're not spending it all the time, or all the energy on um, walking. But ultimately, it's their decision. Right. I also think that's another place where and like having some early conversations, mm -hmm. I think can be super helpful, because, yeah. you know, it takes us all time to mm -hmm. adjust to to a, a new way of thinking and learning mm -hmm. about things and, yeah. you know, 
and accepting. So it, and it's a disease where there's a lot of loss and yeah. a lot of loss pretty quickly. Yeah. It's loss after loss after loss. Right. And it's not just physical loss, right? There's mm-hmm. loss of agency. There's loss of control. There's loss of roles, loss, loss, loss. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that same article that you mentioned, there were two components that relate back to the healthcare professionals. So us as, as physical therapists, one was lack of knowledge on the healthcare professionals part, like not understanding or knowing what ALS is all about. So I think that's really key for anybody, whether it's new grad or someone who's been practicing for 20 years. Right. And then also throwing too much information at the person, right? So again, you have to present information in such a way that you're offering some hope. You're not taking that completely away, but you also have to have be realistic, right? So when someone says something like, I'm going to go to the gym, is that going to like cure my disease? Like there has to be that conversation um, around the reality of what's being asked. And the answer has to be framed in a real realistic manner as well as a hopeful manner. Right. Yeah. So question about exercises. We've touched on this concept a couple of times and we know that in so many neurodegenerative diseases, cardiovascular exercise and strengthening um, are really beneficial. And I think in ALS, sometimes we don't know what to do as physical therapists. And there's a good reason for that because there hasn't been a ton of research, although hopefully more and more going forward. Um, But what, what can you give us for insights around exercise for people with ALS? Right. So a couple of things. So we, um, I think we did our first Cochrane review, I want to say 2009. And there was two articles. One was mine, <laughs> a randomized controlled trial, small number. That's all we're going to get, I think, sometimes. Okay. And then there was another one by Drury, who's, I think, out of Israel. Um, so there were two articles, and, you know, we pulled the data together. And the findings were that changes in the ALS FRS, which is a, a scale that looks at different aspects of function at three months was better and fatigue scores were lower. So fatigue was less at three months, but that was it. Um, I mean, Drury had some other findings, but the outcome measures that we used were different. I had some other findings. The outcome measures were different. So then we update our systematic review in 2013 and no other articles are put in because they don't meet the inclusion criteria. (laughs) Okay. So now we're updating yet again. We found 104 articles. Out of those, we've screened out all of them except for 16 based on the title and abstract. And then based on full text review, we're down to nine. So now we're, we're, we're extracting the data from there. So I think at this point, there's nothing definitive. You're right. There's articles out there. The methods vary. The outcome measures vary. And I think until we have something definitive, we have to use our knowledge and skills around prescribing exercise. But again, keeping that, you know, nature of the disease, course of disease in mind. I think what the, what the research is showing is that people can engage in aerobic exercise and resistance exercise. And it's, I'm going to use the word safe. So I guess it, it's tolerated. We didn't find any adverse um, effects in our Cochrane review. Um, some recent uh, studies have shown that there's no, maybe there's no improvement, but there's no worsening in terms of progression. 
Mm-hmm. So I think we can say, you know, it doesn't worsen the disease. So we're like at the stage where we were with MS way back where, you know, people with MS shouldn't exercise, but then we learned, well, you know, if you put, you know, if they need to stay cool and whatever, they can exercise. So we're kind of at that point. Mm-hmm. In terms of guidelines or parameters, I think what we're looking at is aerobic exercise and resistance exercise, probably more beneficial in the early stages. Mm-hmm probably more beneficial with someone who's slowly progressing in terms of course of disease. And then resistance, you want to look at, you know, that muscle grading, if it's the affected muscle, at least a grade three, three plus, if you're going to do anything. And then unaffected muscles, yes. Low to moderate load. And then the load's going to decrease as the disease progresses. Because this window actually narrows. So someone might actually be in a training effect with doing ADL because of the motor neuron loss. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of aerobic exercise, we're looking at the same thing. So moderate intensity, um, maybe three, four on the Borg, CR 10 scale or uh, 50 to 65% heart rate reserve. Uh-huh. But that's what we're looking at. Yeah, I think that those kinds of parameters are super helpful for people because it's, it's really, it is, it's really hard to know sometimes what to do. And I think what you alluded to earlier too, is really taking the patient into account, but some people really want to exercise. Absolutely. They have a history of it. It makes them feel, you know, quote unquote normal to do that. And, and we certainly want to be able to support people in doing that. Yeah. And just another piece to add to that. I think anytime we're supporting people in their exercise program or we're prescribing, you know, aerobic or resistance exercise, we have to be thinking of overwork. So there has to be some monitoring of overwork exercise log. You know, we shouldn't see any increased weakness. We shouldn't see any increased cramping. We shouldn't see any increased vesiculations. We shouldn't see fatigue to the point where they can't do ADL for, for days on end. If we're seeing that, then they're doing too much. And we have to scale back. So that always has to be in the back of our mind. So what, while I've said it's, it's safe, it doesn't make the disease worse. There is the concept of overwork that always has to be considered. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, good point. And the other sort of major category of things that we haven't touched on yet is falls mm-hmm. in people with ALS. Mm-hmm. Um, which can occur and they can be injurious. But one of the things that I found interesting was this finding of some vestibular involvement yeah. mm-hmm. for people with ALS, which I would not have jumped to right. as a, a cause potentially of falls. And so can you just talk a little bit about what's been found in that realm? Yeah. So you're referring to the Sanjak article, mm-hmm. that article, that work. So um a couple of things. So yeah, the incidence of falls is actually quite high. I remember we looked at it in our ALS clinic and we found like 46%. So almost half of the people we were seeing um, were experiencing falls. So the Academy of Neurology has come out with the consensus guideline where at every visit you, you need to be asking about falls. Mm-hmm. And the work of Sanjak, if I'm remembering correctly, they actually found that people were having difficulty with the vestibular component. Um, so they were lo- relying on their vision or people mm-hmm. with ALS were relying on their vision to maintain their balance. And 
that his work actually speaks to that that consideration that we're not just looking at motor, we're looking at a multi-system. So perhaps the cerebellum is actually affected and the cerebellar pathways are actually affected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super interesting. But I think another great tip for people is if, you know, they're noticing balance problems or early on really looking at somebody's vestibular function and can you give them some Absolutely. exercises to beef that up uh, early on Absolutely. in the process. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So we just have a few more minutes. There's one more thing that I wanted to touch on, and that is the new um, sort of exciting research coming out around treatment, mm -hmm. more related to like the stem cell research and gene therapy treatments potentially coming and, you know, how we think that might affect the role of physical therapy if the disease can be slowed down or changed, you know, or stopped potentially. Right. I mean, there's a study that was quite promising at the safety level, sort of at the phase two level where, and I realize this is a small proportion of people, but the, the substance that was administered via spinal tap, it actually was affecting the SOD1 gene. So it was an oglionucleotide that actually affected the genetics of a small proportion, but I mean, that's exciting. So I think anytime we have a neurodegenerative disease and then we have something like stem cell or a disease modifying agent or, you know, vector, whatever we have, it's very exciting because it offers then us as rehabilitation professionals, physical therapists, the opportunity to intersect with what we're seeing from that aspect, right? So if we know XYZ slows down progression, then we're gonna be afforded the opportunity of a longer period of time to work with an individual and to, as well, through our interventions, perhaps change the slope of decline, right? So those, to me, those two things intersect. Yeah, it almost makes our toolbox more valuable. Correct, right? yeah. yeah. Because it, it has the potential to at least you know, make it so that you can use those tools in a more robust way. So learning some of these yeah. strategies, you know, yeah. make, can make more sense. Right. But from the patient perspective, what they're looking for is the cure, right? They want the cure. Right. Of course. Well, we all want the cure. Yeah, we want, right. But in the meantime, we have to figure things out, right? right. So in the meantime, what do we do in, while we're waiting for the cure, right? We have to focus on improving quality of life, addressing needs, addressing goals. Right. Right. All right, well, I'm gonna shift gears again, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. And um, one of the things we love to do on this podcast, Vanina, is ask people what they do when they're not doing all of this great work that, that you're doing. So what kinds of things do you enjoy doing up there in Hamilton, Ontario? Well, I love being in nature. So hiking is probably one of my passions. For people who don't know, Hamilton is surrounded by escarpment and waterfalls. So hiking for sure, um, being in nature for sure. I like to cook and eat, which isn't good right now, but yeah, cook and eat. And then I like to travel, which also isn't very good right now. So um, traveling's on hold. Hiking still exists now that um, trails are opened up. Um, but those are the things I like to do. Yeah, that's great. There's We have had a lot of people talk about hiking mm -hmm. on this uh, podcast. I think, well, to me, it I just like to be outside. I feel grounded when I'm outside. Yeah. 
and there's no noise, right? There's no pinging of cell phones or emails or this or that or whatever. Yeah, I think you're forced, you're right, you're forced to disconnect for yeah. a longer period of time. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just like going out for a walk or a run that's 30 minutes or 60 minutes and right. and then you're back at it. Um, but I think that is probably one reason. And then I think, you know, a lot of us as, as um, physical therapists really appreciate moving and getting our blood pumping and feeling mm -hmm. alive that way. And so I think that getting out in the woods sort of can do that for people. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I didn't, I, di I didn't mention like some of our more recent work, we're actually developing um, a preference-based measure for people with ALS. And um, some of the initial development actually showed that recreation and leisure was like way up there in terms of both um, the area of their life that was most effective, affected and um, the area that they would like to see improved. And I know I talked about exercise, but maybe our focus should also be shifting to maybe physical activity, <laughs> less than, you know, exercise per ACSM so that it's more accessible, I think, for folks. And it seems to be more um, universal to people with ALS. Right. Yeah, I think that recreation piece is, is huge. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you for joining us this evening. I feel like we've had a really great conversation. I think people will find it interesting and useful for their clinical practice. And we hope that you'll consider coming back to visit us at some point and chatting some more about this and maybe even some other work that you're doing. So thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to be able to participate. Thank you, Carmen. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a friend or colleague. Special thank you to our volunteers, Katie Burke and Adriana Carey, and our student intern, Mira Pierce. This podcast was edited by Sarah Crandall. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. Ugh, that's a blooper for you. I know. It is cramping our style big time. And I'm butchering this completely, so don't quote me on this. This might have to be your, like a redo. Yeah. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. So we're four reviewers. Three, you know, we're fine. One just kind of trashed my article, but that's okay. But right, everybody and their brother has a podcast now.